haven't said much about the property that the Lord blessed us with on 32 School Street, but I can see it. And I don't just mean I can see it. I mean, I can see it. I can see what it's going to look like. I can see the impact that it's going to have. Or at least I think I can, because it's hard to know exactly the kind of impact that it's going to have because the Lord gave us this property kind of miraculously. And so knowing what the impact of it is going to be is kind of hard to see. But I can see the facility. I can see the site. If we were to leave right now and go on a little field trip, an imaginary field trip, we take a left on the Slater Ave. We drive down to the light. We'd be looking at the Slater Library right ahead of us and the gas station on the right. We'd take a right at the light, and we would go uh, past the post office on the left. We'd see the Jewett City Baptist Church on the left. There's that big, ugly brown building on the right, and that's right where School Street is. We take a right on School Street. Package store is on the left-hand side now. It's only about a block or so down School Street. And then the road bends around slightly to the left, and the Jewett City Department, the electrical department, is on the right there. And the, the road bends around, and it leads right into the, the driveway for 32 School Street. And if now we're sitting in the driveway, looking at the property, we're, we're facing north, and the river's to our right on the east, and there's neighbors on our left. And as we look at the property, on the left-hand side, on the western side of the property, there's, there's a parking lot there. And it's in two different levels because of the grade that goes down to the river. So each level can park about 50 cars or so. And so we take our car and we, we drive around and we make a slight sweeping left-hand turn and we find a place to park. There's going to be some islands there that have trees breaking up the parking lot, making it miserable for whoever's going to plow. But it's nice to look at. And so now we've parked our car in our neighbor's houses. The apartments are are behind us, and the river is in front of us, and the driveway is on the right to the south, and the D'Amico greenhouse is to the left. And we're walking into the main entrance of the facility. It's about 10,000 square feet. On the left-hand side is an auditorium that seats about 250 to 300 people. If you purposely design an auditorium for more than 300 people, you have to put in a sprinkler system, and that just added six figures to your construction program. So no sprinkler. Don't. No. Straight ahead is the main entrance, the foyer. It's, it's, it's large with high ceilings. It's got a polished concrete floor. Big set of doors there opening up. And as you walk through, there's light coming in from the east because there's just windows there with a view down to the river. But before we get there, there's bathrooms on the right-hand side. You walk past the bathrooms and you make a right. Now you're facing south again. And that's the River Kids Hallway. There's three doors on the right, there's three doors on the left, and there's a janitor's closet all the way down at the end at the hallway because our children are slobs. The three doors on the right go to different River Kids classrooms, first the nursery, then the creepy crawlies, and then the primary ones that are kindergarten, first grade. On the left-hand side of the hallway, the first door on the left is a conference room, and it has windows all around it because as community groups come and use that conference room, they'll be able to enjoy the the view of the coffee shop, which I'll get there in a second. And it'll just be a nice open space where that conference room is with windows all around it. Of course, a door. The second door on the left is my office. I'll come back to that in a moment. The third door on the left is the big kids' classroom, and it has a big, sweeping, panoramic view of the river. Now let's go back into my office, because I love it. I've never had an office. I get to use the backside of my wife's desk at home right now. I've been 
using it for years. But I'm going to have an office in this building because there's a number of reasons for it other than the fact that I just want one. But you walk into my office and there's a big view of the river on the right-hand side up against the right-hand wall is where my desk is. There's a couple of nice squishy chairs in the middle. There's a dry erase board on your immediate right on the wall that's also the back side of the hallway because I love dry erase boards. On the left-hand side is some artwork that I have from different missions trips that I've been on. And the, the thing that I really love about my office is as you walk into my office past the squishy furniture towards the big panoramic view of the river, there's a s little, small, sunken lap pool right there with an infinity edge and a little current in it so that during lunch I can swim laps in my office and it looks like I'm swimming in the river. That's a lie. That's not actually going to be there. It's a cool thought, though. I can see it. I can see it. Now we're back out in the main foyer. The parking lot is behind us. We're walking through the main foyer. River Kids Hallway is on the right. We just passed that hallway because we know we're not allowed down there because that's where kids are. And we go straight ahead into the coffee shop. The coffee shop part is on the left-hand side. There's seating for about 20 or 30 people on the main level. And then as you go through the main level, you take a half step down, and there's going to be like a little landing there with more windows and a, and a table surface, a, a, a bench surface where people can sit overlooking the river. So it doesn't matter where you are in the cafe, you're never more than one head or two away being able to see right down into the river. And it's beautiful. On the left-hand side, there's a, a play space that's designed specifically for children who are on the spectrum. There's toys and activities in there that help children who have autism. It's the only one of its kind in DC County. And it's, of course, all children play there, but it'll be built purposely for children who are on the spectrum. So during the week, moms and dads can come and with their little ones and, and hang out there and enjoy their time. Back out in the main hallway now, the auditorium is on our left. We walk into the auditorium. It's a big open room. We purposely didn't put any pews in there because we want to be able to use it uh, during the week for kids and after school program. On the right-hand side, there's big windows overlooking the river going to be a small platform there, and our sound system will be there. And while I'm preaching in our new facility, you'll be able to daydream and look out at the river and the sun and the trees and the grass. It'll be great for you. And then every once in a while, you can listen to the sermon. The soundboard, of course, will be in the back. The ends of the rooms will be utilized that way so that, again, the middle can be a place to play, and we can uh, protect our equipment from wiffle balls and dodgeballs and that kind of a thing because an important part of our church is that we can pressure wash the whole thing inside and out because honestly it's Jewish city right this is how this is how it works and it's an amazing facility it's a beautiful facility and we know what's going to happen there uh, when you're in the cafe looking out over the grass there's there's a, a, a splash pad that's going to be open during the warm warm weather months so families can come during the week and kids can play in the splash pad you would not believe how much land is actually out in the river itself and surrounded by three sides. Out on that peninsula, which is right in the middle of the river, it's visible from both the Slater Ave Bridge and the Ashland Ave Bridge to your right and to your left, or to the south and to the north. There's going to be a picnic area down there, a small fishing dock. And in the dark of night, one night, we're going to go out in the middle of the river and we're going to take shovels and we're going to dig a deep part of the river without anybody knowing it's probably illegal so that we can baptize people there. 
And maybe the bass will hang out there too. And then we know where the fish can be. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be the kind of place where you're going to want, your, your families are going to say uh, on a lazy summer afternoon, man, what would you like to, let's, let's go to Jewish City. Nobody says that. But that's the kind of place it's going to be. It's going to be a place where marriages are going to take place, and we're going to have funerals there as well. We're going to dedicate our children. We're going to teach them the gospel from an early age. More young men and women, we're going to learn how to play and sing and worship the Lord there. Decisions of faith are going to be made there. It's going to be used during the week for not just the conference room, for business meetings and such, but also for rec programming during the week as well. And we know that God is going to do something unique there because what we're building is replicatable. We're hoping to build this for about a million dollars or so. And what's going to happen is in a few years as the church grows, we're not going to fit in that room anymore. And it's going to be time to start another church. And we're going to pray over another local town that's underserved by the gospel. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk to the men and women of faith that are currently ministering in that community. We don't care what kind of church they have. We're going to go and humble ourselves to them and pray with them and cast vision for another church coming into the area to share the gospel and be engaged in the community. Then we're going to start serving that community well for about a year or so before we do anything. And then we'll find a place to meet. And we'll take a team from River Church with a pastor that God calls. And we're going to send him with some money and a trailer and a truck and a team of about 30 or 40 or maybe even 50 people. And we're going to launch a new church somewhere along the 395 corridor, probably to the north, because I think that's where the most gospel opportunity is. And then we're going to do it again. And then we're going to do it again. And then we're going to do it again. That's the vision. I don't talk about it much. I don't say much because I like focusing on relationships and I like focusing on the people. But I don't want you to think that there is no vision for where River Church is going. That the Lord has put on my heart. And hopefully this morning you've been able to see it too. Because vision is so critical. Vision is so important. Vision helps us establish priorities in the here and the now that determine what we're going to be able to do in the future because we want to talk to more people about Jesus. And so that shapes how we spend our money today. It shapes how we hire people today. It shapes how we train up ministry volunteers today because we have that end vision in sight. Zechariah is a minor prophet. He has 14 chapters, one of the longer minor prophets, and it is a straight-up vision from God. Straight-up vision from God. And there's so much in the book of Zechariah that if, if biblical commentators are being honest with you, they'll, they'll, they'll look you in the eye and they'll say, and they write this, they say, I really have no idea what God is talking about in this passage. <laughs> it's just hard to understand a lot of the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, however, begins with eight visions that came in the night to the prophet Zechariah. And then the second half of Zechariah continues on from there. But if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to the second to the last book of the Old Testament. There's only one more book in the Old Testament. That will be next week. This week we're going to take our study from Zechariah. It is a book of vision. Is it a book of vision? Now, the difference between my vision that I have, these are just thoughts that I've made up, and I hope it works out that way. But Zechariah's visions actually came from the Lord. These are things that the Lord showed him. And I know that the Lord has inspired part of my vision as well because it pertains to sharing the gospel. But I doubt my office will have a 
continue the edge lap forward. Zechariah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the first six verses. This is the context for the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, of course, is one of the minor prophets that is now giving prophecy after the nation of Israel has been returned from captivity. Most of the minor prophets, the first nine, are warning Israel that they're going to lose their land, they're going to lose their ability to practice the law, and the temple is going to be destroyed. All of that has happened. And now they're coming back to an empty piece of land where they're having a hard time living by the law. The temple has not been rebuilt yet, but they have been restored to the land. This is Zechariah. In the eighth month, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, who was a Persian king, he was not an Israeli king, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. And this is what it says. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of hosts says. Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your ancestors, the earlier prophets proclaimed to them. This is what the Lord of hosts says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. A set of rhetorical questions follows. Where are your ancestors now? And do the prophets live forever? But didn't my words and my statutes that I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? They repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. This is the context of Zechariah. Zechariah is saying to the people, don't be like your grandpappy and your grandmammy. They did not listen to the prophets. They did not listen to the Lord. And now what are they saying today? They are saying today that every single thing the Lord said was going to happen to us because of our disobedience has now actually happened, and we should have listened. This is the context for Zechariah. And so you have a people, about 42,000 of them or so, living in the promised land, but As we talked about last week, they're despondent. They're discouraged. They don't have any vision for the future. They're just happy to be alive. There's no desire to rebuild the temple or reinstitute the law or the sacrificial system. There's no hope. There's no aspirations. They're, they're, again, they're just looking to scrabble out an existence for themselves. And then the Lord gives Zechariah a series of visions, eight visions. And your Bible might even call this next section the night visions. But that comes from Zechariah chapter 1, verse 8, which says that I looked out in the night and saw, and this happens seven more times, I looked out and I saw these eight visions, most scholars believe, came in the the context of one very busy night for Zechariah. And so the metaphor of Zechariah, the big idea that kind of binds the whole book together, that helps us understand what the Lord is saying to his people is these idea of night visions dreams in the night about what God is going to do in the future. Well, what's he going to do in the future? Because it has everything to do with the meaning of Zechariah. Take a look with me at Zechariah chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. These are the concluding verses of the first vision, but they do a good job of summarizing many of the other visions as well. Listen to what the Lord's plan is for his people, beginning in chapter 1 of Zechariah, verse 14. 
So the angel who was speaking with me said, Proclaim, the Lord of hosts says, I am extremely jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I am fiercely angry with the nations that are at ease, for I was a little angry, but they made it worse. This is me talking now. Israel was allowed to go through a period of judgment which was inflicted by first the Assyrian Empire, then the Babylonian Empire, and then finally by the Medo-Persian Empire. And it was the Lord's sovereign purpose that they would learn obedience by spending a time of captivity. However, the terms of their actual captivity and the way that the conquest of the promised land went down were far beyond anything that God intended. And so now what God is saying is that I am really upset and irritated with these countries that I used to discipline you because they took it too far. That's the meaning of this passage right here. Continuing. Verse 16. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. In mercy, I have returned to Jerusalem. My house will be rebuilt within it. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. And a measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. Verse 17. Proclaim further. This is what the Lord of hosts says. My cities will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will once more comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. The bottom line is of the eight visions that are received by Zechariah in the course of this night. The Lord promises to the nation of Israel peace, prosperity, and the Lord's presence with his people. See, they have no vision for the future. They, they can't see beyond their day-by-day -day needs. There's no motivation to restore the practice of the law or to build a temple or to populate the land. And so the visions, eight of them, are a series of encouraging words from the Lord to Zechariah saying that you will be a nation defined by peace. You'll be a nation that has a certain degree of prosperity. Zechariah goes on to describe it by saying every family will get to sit under their own grapevine and fig tree. It's like the Israeli version of, mm, what would that be? Sitting out on a deck with a nice yard. Maybe a swimming pool. That's basically what he's saying. Although I think swimming pools are too much work, especially in New England. So that doesn't really work for me. You know what it would be? It would be like the hot tub on the end of your deck. That's powered by the wood furnace that you never have to worry about running out of hot water. You don't have to worry about your electric bill. That's what it is. That's what a vine and a fig tree is. It's a hot tub that's always hot. Feels good. Not really, but you get the idea. It's a version of, of things are going to be prosperous for you. It's going to be okay. You're going to be able to afford some of the nicer things in life. And most importantly, my presence is going to return to my people, specifically to my city, specifically to my temple. This is the promise. So the meaning of the book of Zechariah, what were the people supposed to take away from this prophecy, these eight visions that Zechariah shares with them? They're supposed to take away this thought, that God will provide for the future of his people. There is a future for the people of God. It's going to be okay. You were disciplined for a season. You were disciplined for a time. But it's going to be all right. Look to the future. Rebuild the temple. Fill the land. Don't be filled with fear. I'm going to take care of your enemies. They're going to get what's coming to them. But there is a future for the people of God. God will provide for the future of his people. Interestingly enough, the book of Zechariah is one of the most quoted in the New 
Testament, and we're only going to have time this morning to take a look at a few quotes. But Zechariah does something that no other minor prophet does, and it's fascinating. And it's so powerful, we're going to do something this morning that we haven't done. Normally, at this time in the message, we say these are minor prophets, but they have a, a, a major message. And we tie it into a New Testament text. And we turn to the New Testament, and we look at how the New Testament authors use the minor prophet. And we understand the gospel. We discern the gospel in that. And it's been great, and we'll probably continue that next week as we conclude this sermon series next week. But these passages are so unique, and God does something through the prophecy that he gives Zechariah that's so special. We're not going to turn to the New Testament. You can see what passages these prophecies from Zechariah will turn up in in the New Testament. It's on the slide. But I just want to read Zechariah. And he's going to take us through a narrative journey. And you guys are going to discern what the gospel message is this morning. So let's take a look at the first passage in Zechariah that is then quoted in the New Testament. But I'm just going to read it from Zechariah. And I want you guys to tell me where this passage comes from in the story of, about Jesus Christ. So the first one is found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Listen to this passage, and then you tell me at what time in Jesus' life did this prophecy come true. So I'm reading from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. At what point in Jesus' life did this prophecy come true? Specifically, what day? Who knows? That's right. On Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And if you were to turn to Matthew, uh, I believe it's chapter 21, verse 5, you would see that it is the beginning of the Holy Week. It's the first day of the Holy Week. He sends his disciples into the town. He says, go here, here, and here, and find me a donkey. And if the owner says anything, tell him that the Lord requires it. They brought the donkey back to Jesus. And then what did they do? They took off their garments. They put some on the back of the donkey. They paved the street with their garments and the palm branches. This prophecy came true on the first day of the Passion Week of Jesus' Passion. That's what we know of Passion Week. Palm Sunday. This from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. As we continue reading from Zechariah, Watch what God does regarding the future of his people. And, and the gospel message is going to be clear. The next passage, Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. Listen to these verses. Now, Zechariah is weird. These verses are appearing in the original context, and, and it's talking about shepherds and good shepherds and bad shepherds. And, 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 and it's just hard to understand what Zechariah is talking about. Again, most commentators, if they're honest with you, will say, we're really not sure what the original meaning of this passage was for the people in Israel. And we understand that it was used in the New Testament, but wow, there's some interesting stuff going on. But listen to this passage, and instantly, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll, you'll recognize this passage, Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. Then I said to them, if it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed my wages 30 pieces of silver. Throw it to the potter, the Lord said to me. This magnificent price I was valued by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. What part of Jesus' life is that from? The 
betrayal of Jesus just a couple days later, right? The first passage that we see used in the New Testament describes the entrance of the king humble on a donkey. The next passage that we come across in the book of Zechariah that we see in the New Testament is talking about the betrayal of Judas. How much was, did Judas, was Judas paid by the Pharisees to betray Jesus in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane? 30 pieces of silver. And then Judas was filled with remorse, the text says. You can find this story in Matthew chapter 27, verse 9. And he realizes after he betrays Jesus that he's done an evil thing. And he goes back to the Pharisees and says, I have betrayed innocent blood. And what do the Pharisees say? What is it to us? So not caring. And so Judas took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the temple. And then he died, right? And we know how that ends. That's the second passage that we see. And so there's a future for God's people. This is the first half of Zechariah, eight visions. And then Zechariah is just filled with straight up muscular prophecy. It's so hard to understand in the context what he's talking about until you wrestle with the passion week of Jesus Christ and then it begins to click. Zechariah prophesies Palm Sunday. Zechariah prophesies the price for which Jesus would be betrayed and what actually happens to the money. Let's keep going. It's the passion week of Jesus. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. What part of Jesus' life does this passage? quoted in John chapter 19 verse 32 they will look on him whom they have pierced where'd they get that from Zechariah Zechariah prophesied the passion week of Jesus see the first half of Zechariah is you have a future and the second half of Zechariah is all about the passion week of Jesus we're almost there we're almost there we're almost to the main point of this gospel presentation in this minor prophet Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Sword, awake against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. What part of this Jesus story, the passion narrative does this cover? has been crucified, he was laid in the grave, what happened to the disciples? They were scattered. And it wasn't until Jesus was resurrected from the dead and came back into Jerusalem, remember he had to go find them because they were fishing, right? Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It's the conclusion of the Passion Week of Jesus. It starts with Palm Sunday, the king coming to you humbly on the back of a donkey that's never been ridden. And then it goes and talks about the
the price for which he was betrayed and what actually happens to the money. And then it talks about the greater realization that people will understand the evil that they have just done, that they have killed the very one that came to save, and the resulting consequences of his death immediately on his disciples is that they were scattered. You see, there's a future for God's people, eight visions of peace and prosperity and a future. And then the second half of Zechariah are filled with some of the most powerful and confusing sometimes prophecies of the New Testament describing that, this gospel message that the passion of Jesus is God's provision. You see, the future of God's people is found in the meaning of the Passion Week of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus did it. This prophecy was written right around 500 B.C. 500 years before Jesus was born, Zechariah prophesied the event of the Passion Week of Jesus, which you and I would call Easter, from Palm Sunday through Maundy Thursday, through Good Friday, through the scattering of the disciples, right before Jesus came back from the dead on Easter Sunday morning. The passion of Jesus, the story of Easter, is God's provision for his people. That's his people's future, as found in the book of Zechariah. We're going to want to wrap this sermon up in just a couple of minutes and I'd like the worship team to come and join me as I conclude. So where does that leave us now? The future of God's people is defined by the Passion Week of Jesus because God has a future for his people and has everything to do with the events that took place on the Passion Week, which we would now call Easter. It leaves us in a place where it's time now for an honest and transparent conversation. How can you not review these scriptures, which were given to a despondent people who thought they had no vision or no future, who were given a vision and a future, and we have the privilege of seeing it resolved in the week of Easter, of the, the passion of Jesus. How can it not lead to an honest and transparent conversation? One of the interesting things about our property is Right now, it doesn't look like much, but there's already things of note that we that we that yesterday when we met before we started cleaning, we spent a few minutes uh, praying, asking that the Lord would bless the property, and then there's a little brief that I give warning people about the dangerous spots on the property. In the southwest corner, there's a hornet's nest in the ground, and and you and you can't miss it because it's right next to where this really really thorny, spiky, dangerous devil tree grows. The thorns are like this long. And so we say, hey, if you're going to go to the southwest corner, it was so cold yesterday, we weren't worried about the ground bees, but those thorns were there. So watch out for that. Along the western edge next to our neighbors, there's a hole that's about, I don't know, Carlos, what is it, a foot and a half wide and two or three feet deep? If you step in that thing, it'll snap your leg in a heartbeat. And so we have an honest and transparent conversation about the property. We're so grateful for it. We're so thankful for it. There is a vision and a future there for our people that has everything to do with sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But watch out for the southwest corner. Watch out for the western edge. We mark these dangerous areas. We have an honest and transparent conversation because we know that these are situations that will ultimately be resolved. But right now, be careful there. And so some of us need to have an honest and transparent conversation with our Heavenly Father. Lord, I've never realized I've resisted your gospel for so long. 
I didn't realize that for 500 years you had prophesied these specific events that were going to happen to your son and how it works into a promise of a future for me. Lord, in, in, in light of your word and the truth that is found there, I just, I, I repent, I'm sorry. I've put you off for too long. Honest and transparent, I've been putting you off for too long. No further. Your word is too powerful. Your, your intents are too great. I'm humbled by them. I submit myself to your will. And I ask for your forgiveness. That would be like a vertical, honest and transparent conversation. Some of us might need horizontal, honest and transparent conversations. And it may not even necessarily be about dangerous spots in your life or in your relationship, but it might just be humbling yourself to your spouse or to your children and just speaking truth about how much you appreciate them, how much you love them, how much they mean to you. Opening up the possibility where they can warn the family or let you know about troubling spots in your relationship like the hornets found in the southeast cor southwest corner of our property. Those conversations will never happen if we're not honest and transparent with those that we love. And, of, and then of course, there's always people that are underneath our authority, our children or possibly employees or people at work. An honest and a transparent conversation. Hey, I know I'm your dad, and I know I can come down kind of hard on you sometimes, but I want to let you know how much I appreciate you. Is there a way that I can show how much I love you? Is there a way that I can be a better dad to you? And then see what that little chucklehead says. Honest and transparent conversations. In light of a minor prophet with a major message, how can we not have honest and transparent conversations vertically and horizontally and with those that are under our authority? Because we have been impressed with what God has done through his intentions and his people over hundreds of years. And it's still true. Nothing has changed. The vision for God's people still has everything to do with the passion of Jesus Christ as prophesied in Zechariah. And so this morning, whether for the first time or for the 400th time, or maybe sometime after church today or over lunch, it would be the time for an honest and transparent conversation because we've been humbled by the power of God's word. When we see the future that he has laid out for us, we don't want anything to get in the way if this is the kind of future, conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, and if this is the kind of work that you put into it, then Heavenly Father, let it happen. And it begins with honest and transparent conversations. And just be warning from the southwest corner, there's a big hole along the western wall. Be careful of those spots. Enjoy the relationship. Enjoy the property. But tell me about myself, ways that I can serve you and love you better. Even as I have that conversation with the Lord tomorrow morning in your devotions, wherever your reading brings you. It doesn't have to be long. It just needs to happen. Heavenly Father, would you use this time of devotion where I'm absorbing your word through my eyes that it might penetrate my heart? Would you be honest and transparent with me because I want to humble myself before you because your vision for my life is so much greater than anything I can see for myself and I'm just humbled by the power of your word. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to be inspired by the prophet Zechariah. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you, Father, for a community of people who come to church for one reason and one reason only, which is to be humbled by the power of your word, to be inspired by the power of your word, to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. That is where our future lies. We are
defined by the passion week that was prophesied by Zechariah. And Father, we pray that through honest and transparent conversations with you and with those that we know and live and work and with those under our authority, that your vision for our life would come true. We ask these things in Jesus' name.